I'm Jeffrey Hopkins, the translator and editor of this program. I first heard His Holiness the Dalai Lama teach in 1972, just three days after my arrival in Dharamsala in northern India. He started a 16-day lecture series for four to six hours each day on the stages of the path to enlightenment. I had begun studying Tibetan and practicing Tibetan Buddhism in 1962, and my teachers, particularly gifted in the intricacies of Tibetan commentaries, had prepared me for study with Tibetan refugee scholar yogis in India. But, to be frank, I did not think that a governmentally appointed reincarnation, born in northeastern Tibet in 1935, and recognized through prophecies, visions, extraordinary occurrences, and tests, as the 14th Dalai Lama at the age of two could possibly live up to the billing. However, I was amazed. He spoke on a wide range of topics concerning the path to enlightenment, capturing my mind and heart with concepts large and small that clarified issues long unresolved. He expanded on others and drew me into new areas of understanding. In Tibetan, the Dalai Lama speaks with such great speed and clarity that it was impossible for me to be distracted. Once, he became particularly inspired while describing the reflections for generating compassion. His voice rose in pitch to a level that he jokingly described as his goat voice, in which I heard the inspired absorption of a poet. During that series of lectures, he presented the full range of practices leading to enlightenment, often juxtaposing topics that others leave in isolation, all this with the depth of a philosopher. The same dual voice of poet and philosopher is present here, sometimes touching the heart with moving descriptions of the condition of life and the beauties of altruism and at other times making careful distinctions about profound practices like meditation on emptiness, which serve as nourishment for years of contemplation. At the age of five, the Dalai Lama was brought to Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, where he underwent the full curriculum of monastic training. Due to the communist Chinese invasion of eastern Tibet in 1950, he suddenly had to take the reins of Tibetan government at age 16. Despite attempts to cooperate with the invaders, he was faced with imminent personal danger and escaped to India in 1959. In exile, 
he has successfully re-established centers for the broad range of Tibetan culture. He has traveled extensively throughout most of the world, bringing a message, not just to Buddhist and other religious believers, but to everyone, about the importance of kindness to the very fabric of society. In recognition of his untiring efforts on behalf of Tibetans and all peoples, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1989. His Holiness has published many books, some for a general audience and others for those particularly interested in Buddhism. In this program, he draws on a long tradition of spiritual practice in Tibet and on his own experience to offer suggestions on how to practice a spiritual path that will lead to mental clarity and emotional transformation. In this way, he shows how life can be made meaningful. Throughout the 30 years that I have known him, and during the 10 that I served as his chief translator on lecture tours in the United States, Canada, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Australia, Great Britain, and Switzerland, I have witnessed his embodiment of these practices to the very core of his being. It is important for us to recognize that this insightful, compassionate, humorous, and marvelous person rose from Tibetan culture. We need to value that culture as one of the world's great wonders. Simon & Schuster Audio How to Practice The Way to a Meaningful Life by His Holiness the Dalai Lama Read by the translator and editor Dr. Jeffrey Hopkins Introduction The Need for Peace and Kindness I travel to many places around the world, and whenever I speak to people, I do so with the feeling that I am a member of their own family. Although we may be meeting for the first time, I accept everyone as a friend. In truth, we already know one another, profoundly, as human beings who share the same basic goals. We all seek happiness and do not want suffering. There are two ways to create happiness. The first is external. By obtaining better shelter, better clothes, and better friends, we can find a certain measure of happiness and satisfaction. But the second is through mental development, which yields inner happiness. However, these two approaches are not equally viable. External happiness cannot last long without its counterpart. If something is lacking in your perspective, if something is missing in your heart, then despite the most luxurious surroundings, you cannot be happy. However, if you have peace of mind, you can find happiness even under the most difficult circumstances. Material advancement alone sometimes solves one problem but creates another. For example, certain people may have acquired wealth, a good education, and high social standing, yet happiness eludes them. They take sleeping pills and drink too much alcohol. Something is missing, something still not satisfied, so these people take refuge in drugs or in a bottle. On the other hand, some people who have less money to worry about enjoy more peace. They sleep well at night. Despite being poor in a material sense, they are content and happy. This shows the impact of a good mental attitude. Material development alone will not fully resolve the problem of humanity's suffering. In this program, I offer you, the listener, valuable techniques from Tibetan traditions 
which, if implemented in daily practice, lead to mental peace. As you calm your mind and your heart, your agitation and worry will naturally subside and you will enjoy more happiness. Your relationships with others will reflect these changes. As a better human being, you will be a better citizen of your country and ultimately a better citizen of the world. We are all born helpless. Without a parent's kindness, we could not survive, much less prosper. When children grow up in constant fear, with no one to rely on, they suffer their whole lives. Because the minds of small children are very delicate, their need for kindness is particularly obvious. Adult human beings need kindness, too. If someone greets me with a nice smile, and expresses a genuinely friendly attitude. I appreciate it very much. Though I might not know that person or understand their language, they instantly gladden my heart. On the other hand, if kindness is lacking, even in someone from my own culture whom I have known for many years, I feel it. Kindness and love, a real sense of brotherhood and sisterhood, these are very precious. They make community possible and thus are crucial in society. Each of us has a valid sense of self, of I. We also share fundamental goals. We want happiness and do not want suffering. Animals and insects also want happiness and do not want suffering. But they have no special ability to consider how to achieve deeper happiness or overcome suffering. As human beings endowed with this power of thought, we have this potential and we must use it. On every level, as individuals and as members of a family, a community, a nation, and a planet, the most mischievous troublemakers we face are anger and egoism. The kind of egoism I refer to here is not just a sense of I, but an exaggerated self-centeredness. No one claims to feel happy while being angry. As long as anger dominates our disposition, there is no possibility of lasting happiness. In order to achieve peace, tranquility, and real friendship, we must minimize anger and cultivate kindness and a warm heart. This can be achieved through the practices I will describe. Developing a warm heart ourselves can also transform others. As we become nicer human beings, our neighbors, friends, parents, spouses, and children experience less anger. They will become more warm-hearted, compassionate, and harmonious. The very atmosphere becomes happier, which promotes good health, perhaps even a longer life. You may be rich, powerful, and well-educated, but without these healthy feelings of kindness and compassion, there will be no peace within yourself no peace within your family. Even your children suffer. Kindness is essential to mental peace. As you will hear, the central method for achieving a happier life is to train your mind in a daily practice that weakens negative attitudes and strengthens positive ones. The big question is whether or not we can practice kindness and peace. Many of our problems stem from attitudes like putting ourselves first at all costs. I know from my own experience that it is possible to change these attitudes and improve the human mind. Though it is colorless, shapeless, and sometimes weak, the human mind can become stronger than steel. To train the mind, you must exercise the patience and determination it takes to shape that steel. If you practice improving your mind with a strong will and forbearance, by trying, 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 no matter how many difficulties you may encounter at the beginning, then you will succeed. With patience and practice and time, change will come. Do not give up. If you are pessimistic from the beginning, you cannot possibly succeed. If you are hopeful and determined, you will always find some measure of success. Winning the gold medal does not matter.
you have tried your best. Much of the world is now connected by a web of electronic communication and instant information. In the 21st century, our global economy has made nations and their people heavily dependent upon one another. In ancient times, trade between nations was not necessary. Today, it is impossible to remain isolated. So if nations do not have mutual respect, problems are bound to arise. Although there are grave signs of trouble between poorer and richer nations and between poorer and richer groups within nations, these economic rifts can be healed by a stronger sense of global interdependence and responsibility. The people of one nation must consider the people of other nations to be like brothers and sisters who deserve progress for their homelands. Despite the best efforts of world leaders, crises keep erupting. Wars kill innocent people. The elderly and our children die continuously, endlessly. Many soldiers who are fighting are not there by their own initiative. Real suffering is experienced by these innocent soldiers, which is very sad. The sale of weapons, thousands and thousands of types of arms and ammunition, by manufacturers in big countries, fuels the violence. But more dangerous than guns or bombs are hatred, lack of compassion, and lack of respect for the rights of others. As long as hatred dwells in the human mind, real peace is impossible. We must do everything we can to stop war and to rid the world of nuclear weapons. When I visited Hiroshima, where the first atomic bomb was dropped, when I saw the actual spot and heard the stories of survivors, my heart was deeply moved. How many people died in a single moment? How many more were injured? How much pain and desolation nuclear war creates? Yet look at how much money is spent on weapons of mass destruction. It is shocking and immeasurable disgrace. Advancements in science and technology have greatly benefited humankind, but not without a price. While we enjoy the development of jet airplanes, for example, which make it possible to easily travel the world, enormously destructive weapons have also been created. No matter how beautiful or remote their homelands, many people live in constant fear of a very real threat. Thousands upon thousands of nuclear warheads poised for attack. But the button must be pushed by someone, and thus human intention is ultimately responsible. The only way to achieve lasting peace is through mutual trust, respect, love, and kindness. The only way. Attempts by global powers to dominate one another through competition in armaments, whether nuclear, chemical, biological, or conventional, is counterproductive. How can a world full of hatred and anger achieve real peace? External peace is impossible without inner peace. It is noble to work at external solutions, but they cannot be successfully implemented so long as people have hatred and anger in their minds. This is where profound change has to begin. Individually, we have to work to change the basic perspectives on which our feelings depend. We can only do so through training, by engaging in practice with the aim of gradually reorienting the way we perceive ourselves and others. The desperate state of our world calls us to action. Each of us has a responsibility to try to help at the deeper level of our common humanity. Unfortunately, humanity is too often sacrificed in defense of ideology. This is absolutely wrong. Political systems should actually benefit human beings, but, like money, they can control us instead of work for us. If, with a warm heart and patience, we can consider the views of others and exchange ideas in calm discussion, 
we will find points of agreement. It is our responsibility, out of love and compassion for humankind, to seek harmony among nations, ideologies, cultures, ethnic groups, and economic and political systems. When we truly recognize the oneness of all humankind, our motivation to find peace will grow stronger. In the deepest sense, we are really sisters and brothers, so we must share one another's suffering. Mutual respect, trust, and concern for one another's welfare are our best hope for lasting world peace. Of course, national leaders have a special responsibility in this area, but every individual must also take the initiative, regardless of religious belief. Just by being human, by seeking to gain happiness and avoid suffering, you are a citizen of this planet. We are all responsible for creating a better future. To achieve a friendly attitude, a warm heart, respect for the rights of others, and concern for their welfare, you must train the mind. In How to Practice, I will present a series of practices drawn from Tibetan traditions that will be helpful in accomplishing these aims. The essential objective of daily practice is to cultivate an attitude of compassion and calm, a state of mind particularly crucial in human society today for its power to yield true harmony among nations, races, and people from diverse religious, political, and economic systems. The harmony and friendship that we need in our families, nations, and the world can only be achieved through compassion and kindness. By helping one another with concern and respect, we can solve many problems easily. Harmony cannot thrive in a climate of mistrust, cheating, bullying, and mean-spirited competition. Success through intimidation and violence is temporary at best. Its trifling gains only create new problems. This is why, just a couple of decades after the enormous human tragedy of the First World War, the Second World War was fought, and millions more people were killed. If we examine our long history of hatred and anger, we see the obvious need to find a better way. We can only solve our problems through truly peaceful means. Not just peaceful words, but a peaceful mind and heart. In this way, we will have a better world. Is this possible? Fighting, cheating, and bullying have trapped us in our present situation. Now, we need training in new practices to find a way out. It may seem impractical and idealistic, but we have no alternative to compassion, recognizing human value, and the oneness of humanity. This is the only way to achieve lasting happiness. I travel from country to country with this sense of oneness. I have trained my mind for decades. So when I meet people from different cultures, there are no barriers. I am convinced that despite different cultures and different political and economic systems, we are all basically the same. The more people I meet, the stronger my conviction becomes that the oneness of humanity founded on understanding and respect is a realistic and viable basis for our conduct. Wherever I go, this is what I speak about. I believe that the practice of compassion and love, a genuine sense of brotherhood and sisterhood, is the universal religion. It does not matter whether you are Buddhist or Christian, Muslim or Hindu or whether you practice religion at all. What matters is your feeling of oneness with humankind. Do you agree? Do you think this is nonsense? I am not a god-king, as some call me. I am just a Buddhist monk. What I am saying comes from my own practice, which is limited. But I do try to implement these ideas in my daily life, especially when I face problems. Of course, I fail sometimes. Sometimes I get irritated. Occasionally I use a harsh word. But when I do, immediately I feel, oh, this is wrong. 
I feel this because I have internalized the practices of compassion and wisdom that form the core of this program. These daily practices are very useful and very valuable in my own life. Therefore, knowing that you and I are of similar mind and heart, I share them with you. When I was only 15, the Chinese communists invaded eastern Tibet, and within a year, the Tibetan government decided that I should direct Tibet's affairs of state. It was a difficult period as we watched our freedoms being eroded, and in 1959, I was forced to escape from the capital under cover of night. In exile in India, we faced daily problems, ranging from our need to adjust to the vastly different climate to our need to reestablish cultural institutions. My spiritual practice gave me an outlook that made it possible to keep searching for solutions without losing sight of the fact that we are all humans led astray by wrong ideas but united by common bonds ready for improvement. This has taught me that the perspectives of compassion, calm, and insight are essential to daily life and must be cultivated in daily practice. Trouble is bound to come, so cultivating the right attitude is crucial. Anger diminishes our power to distinguish right from wrong, and this ability is one of the highest human attributes. If it is lost, we are lost. Sometimes it is necessary to respond strongly, but this can be done without anger. Anger is not necessary. It has no value. I call compassion the global staple. Human beings want happiness and do not want suffering. Mental peace is a basic need for all humankind, for politicians, engineers, scientists, homemakers, doctors, teachers, lawyers, for all people in every endeavor, a healthy, compassionate motivation is the foundation of spiritual growth. In How to Practice, I will describe specific Buddhist techniques for gaining mental peace and a greater capacity for compassion within the framework of working to overcome what Buddhists consider to be wrong notions about how beings and things exist. In Buddhist terms, this is the path to enlightenment. However, anyone can make use of particular steps toward self-improvement as they see fit. The program is organized into six parts. It begins with the basics, where the story of the Buddha serves as a guide to meaningful living. Here I introduce the three aspects of spiritual practice, which are morality, concentrated meditation, and wisdom. These are the program's principal themes. In the second part, Practicing Morality, I describe two types of morality, reorienting physical and verbal deeds so as to cause no harm to others, and cultivating deeper concern for others. In the third part, Practicing Concentrated Meditation, I describe how to achieve mental focus as well as how to restore calm in stressful situations. This is followed by practicing wisdom, which addresses the difficult but fruitful topic of dependent arising and emptiness. Here we go deeper into Buddhist thinking as we consider the difference between the mind and its ultimate nature. By describing the compatibility between appearance and reality, I hope in this fourth part to clear up any notion that Buddhism is somehow nihilistic or pessimistic. These discussions of morality, concentrated meditation, and wisdom flow into the fifth part, Tantra, which presents a special yoga practice combining these three. I also discuss here how desire can be used in the spiritual path by competent practitioners. The concluding part, Steps Along the Way, presents an overview of the path of practice from its beginnings 
right through to enlightenment, a state wherein mind and body are fully developed in order to be of service to others. From beginning to end, our focus is on developing a good heart and mind through a moral attitude and an understanding of reality empowered by concentration. Think of morality, concentrated meditation, and wisdom as a blueprint for enlightenment, reminding us of the highest aim of practice, a transformation of attitude toward peacefulness, compassion, calm focus, and wisdom. Understanding the blueprint is itself part of the path, drawing us toward the destination. I hope that parts of it may be of use, but if not, that's all right, too. Part 1. The Basics Three Ways to Practice According to some Buddhist schools, Shakyamuni Buddha, the Buddha of this era, first became enlightened in India in the 6th century B.C. through practice of the path. Others, however, believe that Shakyamuni Buddha had achieved enlightenment long before and that in his 6th century B.C. incarnation he was merely demonstrating the path. In Tibet, we take the latter view, and followers learn from his example how to practice in order to achieve enlightenment themselves. In either case, we need to notice that Shakyamuni Buddha was born into a life of leisure as a prince in an Indian royal family. At age 29, upon seeing the suffering of the world, he gave up his royal position, cut his own hair, left his family, and took on the morality of a monastic, adopting a system of ethical behavior. For the next six years, he engaged in ascetic meditation for the sake of achieving concentrated meditation. Then, under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, he practiced special techniques for developing wisdom and achieved enlightenment. He went on to teach for 45 years, and at the age of 81, he died. In the Buddha's life story, we see the three stages of practice. Morality comes first, then concentrated meditation, and then wisdom. And we see that the path takes time. Developing the mind depends upon a great many internal causes and conditions much like a space station depends on the work of generations of scientists who have analyzed and tested even its smallest components. Neither a space station nor an enlightened mind can be realized in a day. Similarly, spiritual qualities must be constructed through a great variety of ways. However, unlike the space station, which is constructed by many people working together, the mind must be developed by you alone. There is no way for others to do the work and for you to reap the results. Reading someone else's blueprint of mental progress will not transfer its realizations to you. You have to develop them yourself. Cultivating an attitude of compassion and developing wisdom are slow processes. As you gradually internalize techniques for developing morality, concentration of mind, and wisdom, untamed states of mind become less and less frequent. You will need to practice these techniques day by day, year by year. As you transform your mind, you will transform your surroundings. Others will see the benefits of your practice of tolerance and love and will work at bringing these practices into their own lives. Buddha's teachings are divided into three collections of scriptures, the discipline of morality, the discourses on concentrated meditation, and the manifest knowledge that explains the training in wisdom. In each of these sets of scriptures, the main practice is described as an extraordinary state that is created from the union of calm abiding, which is concentrated meditation, and special insight, which is wisdom. 
But in order to achieve such a union, first we must lay its foundation, which is morality. Morality, concentrated meditation, and wisdom, this is the essential order of practice. One reason for this is that in order for the wisdom of special insight to remove impediments to proper understanding and to remove faulty mental states at their very roots, we need concentrated meditation, a state of complete single-mindedness in which all internal distractions have been removed. Otherwise, the mind is too fractured. Without such one-pointed concentrated meditation, wisdom has no force, just as the flame of a candle in a breeze does not give off much illumination. Therefore, concentrated meditation must precede wisdom. Moreover, single-minded meditation involves removing subtle internal distractions such as the minds being either too relaxed or too tight. To do so, we must first stop external distractions through training in the morality of maintaining mindfulness and conscientiousness with regard to physical and verbal activities, being constantly aware of what you're doing with your body and your speech. Without overcoming these obvious distractions, it is impossible to overcome subtler internal distractions. Since it is through sustaining mindfulness that you achieve a calm abiding of the mind, the practice of morality must precede the practice of concentrated meditation. In my own experience, taking the vows of a monk called for fewer external involvements and activities, which meant that I could focus more on spiritual studies. Vows to restrain counterproductive physical and verbal activities made me mindful of my behavior and drew me to inspect what was happening in my mind. This meant that even when I was not purposely practicing concentrated meditation, I had to control my mind from being scattered and thus was constantly drawn in the direction of one-pointed internal meditation. The vow of morality has acted as a foundation. Looking at the three practices, morality, concentrated meditation, and wisdom, we see that each serves as the basis for the next. This order of practice is clearly demonstrated in the Buddha's own life story. Therefore, all spiritual progress depends on a foundation of proper morality. Part 2. Practicing Morality Identifying the Scope of Suffering The main principle of Buddhist morality is to help others and, if that is not possible, at least to do no harm. This fundamental commitment to nonviolence, motivated by concern for others, is central to the three types of morality in Buddhism. First, the morality of individual liberation. Second, the morality of concern for others. And third, the morality of Tantra. The morality of individual liberation is mainly practiced by refraining from physical and verbal actions that cause harm to others. This practice is called individual because it provides a way for a person to prepare to move beyond the repeated round of birth, aging, sickness, and death, which Buddhists call cyclic existence, or samsara. The morality of concern for others, called the morality of bodhisattvas, who are beings primarily concerned with helping others, is mainly practiced by restraining the mind from falling into selfishness. For those practicing bodhisattva morality, the essential point is to refrain from self-cherishing, but also to refrain from ill deeds of body and speech. The morality of Tantra centers around special techniques for imagining a fully developed state of body and mind, effectively helping others. It provides a way to restrain 
and thus transcend our limited perception of our bodies and minds, so that we may perceive ourselves shining with wisdom and compassion. Let's first consider the morality of individual liberation. This type of morality requires the self-awareness needed to refrain from physical and verbal actions that bring harm to others. This means abandoning what Buddhists call the ten non-virtues. These are organized into three categories. The physical non-virtues are killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. The verbal non-virtues are lying, divisive talk, harsh speech, and senseless chatter. The mental non-virtues are covetousness, harmful intent, and wrong views. Since motivation precedes and drives actions, controlling it is the best way to prevent impulsive and possibly abusive physical and verbal actions. When you suddenly want something and just reach out and take it without considering the consequences, your desire is expressing itself impulsively, without benefit of reflection. In daily practice, you learn to continually examine your motivation. When I was a boy, Ling Rinpoche, who was then my junior tutor, was always very stern. He never smiled, not even a little. This bothered me a lot. By wondering why he was so humorless, I examined more and more what I was doing in my own mind. This helped me develop self-awareness with regard to my motivation. By my early twenties, when I had matured, Ling Rinpoche completely changed. He always had a big smile when we were together. Effective practice of the morality of individual liberation depends upon sound long-term motivation. For example, one should not become a monk or a nun to avoid having to work at a worldly job for food and clothing. Also, it is not sufficient merely to seek to avoid difficulty in this lifetime. To be motivated by such trifling purposes does not help to achieve freedom from cyclic existence, the ultimate reason to practice the morality of individual liberation. This is confirmed by Buddha's life story. One day, Shakyamuni slipped outside the palace wall to examine life for himself. For the first time, he saw a sick person, an old person, and a corpse. Deeply troubled by the suffering of sickness, aging, and death, he came to the conclusion that worldly life is without substance. Later, inspired by several religious practitioners, Buddha became captivated by the possibility of a higher, more meaningful spiritual life. At that point, he escaped from the palace, leaving his ordinary life behind to pursue that vision. What does this teach us? Like Buddha, we need to begin by becoming concerned about the suffering of cyclic existence and by turning away from temporary distractions. Influenced by this new attitude, we must take up a system of morality by renouncing cyclic existence and by taking vows of pure behavior through seeking to avoid the ten non-virtues. In order to free ourselves from cyclic existence, we need to understand its nature. We need, one, to know the specific types of suffering involved. Two, to discover the causes of those sufferings. Three, to see if it is possible to remove those causes. And then four, to determine what should be practiced. Renunciation, therefore, involves at least partial understanding of the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are 1. True Suffering 2. True Sources of Suffering 3. True Cessations of Suffering and its Sources and 4. True Paths for Actualizing True Cessations When Buddha began teaching for the first time, 
he taught the Four Noble Truths in the order just given. However, this order does not reflect how these truths come into being. In temporal sequence, the second truth, the sources of suffering, precedes the first truth, suffering itself. Similarly, the fourth truth, the paths of practice, must precede attainment of the third, the cessations of suffering. However, Buddha taught the four truths in the order of practice, not in the order in which they are produced. In practice, you have to identify the extent of suffering first, to know that this type of life is beset by misery. This deepens your natural wish to be freed from pain. When you have to recognize suffering for what it is, as Buddha did, then you will be drawn into discovering its causes, the sources of suffering. Just as a doctor must first diagnose a disease, you must understand the root cause of suffering before you can treat it. Not until you have determined the sources of suffering can you understand that there could be a cessation to it. Also, without decisively understanding that the end of suffering is possible, you might consider practice of this path just a fruitless hardship. Then you can seek the true paths for actualizing true cessations. This is why Buddha presented the four truths in the given order of practice. Suffering is the first noble truth. Suffering is like a disease we have all contracted. To find the cure, we must carefully identify the full scope of the disease. There are three types, pain, change, and pervasive conditioning. The first type of suffering is out-and-out -out pain that we all recognize as such. Even animals want to overcome it. The physical and mental pains of daily life, like headaches and the anguish of separation, fall into this category. The second type of suffering is the suffering of change. What we usually experience as pleasure is mostly a diminishment of pain. If good food or drink, for example, really were just pleasurable, if they had an inner nature of pleasure, then no matter how much we ate or drank, we would feel greater and greater happiness in equal measure. Instead, if we partake excessively, we begin to suffer in our bodies and in our minds. This indicates that these experiences of pleasure have an inner nature of pain. I like to tell the story of a family that buys a new television. Compared to the old one, it is really great, and everyone watches it for days on end, but eventually they get tired of it. This indicates that the original pleasure has a nature of pain. Such states of temporary happiness are called the suffering of change. The third type of suffering is called pervasive conditioning. It is deeper than ordinary pain and the suffering of change. Mind and body operate under the influence of karma, karma being tendencies created by previous actions. And mind and body also operate under the influence of afflictive or counterproductive emotions such as lust and hatred. In ordinary life, we are born from and into the pervasive influence of karma and afflictive emotions. Even neutral states of feeling are under the influence of causes and conditions beyond your control. You are stuck in a process susceptible to suffering. At the beginning of our life is birth, during which we suffer, and at the end of our life is death, during which we also suffer. Between these two come aging and illness. No matter how wealthy you are or how physically fit you are, you have to suffer through these circumstances. On top of this comes discontentment. You want more and more and more. This, in a sense, is real poverty, always to be hungry, 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 
with no time to be satisfied. Others might not be rich, but contentment provides them with fewer worries, fewer enemies, fewer problems, and very good sleep. On more than one occasion, when I have visited very nice homes in rich communities, I have peeked inside the medicine chest in the bathroom and found some medications to provide energy for the day and yet others to induce sleep at night. Contentment might do both of these jobs better, since it reduces anxiety during the day, paving the way for sleeping peacefully. In the frenzy of modern life, we lose sight of the real values of humanity. People become the sum total of what they produce. Human beings act like machines, whose function is to make money. This is absolutely wrong. The purpose of making money is the happiness of humankind, not the other way around. Humans are not for money. Money is for humans. We need enough to live, so money is necessary. But we also need to realize that if there is too much attachment to wealth, it does not help at all. As the saints of India and Tibet tell us, the wealthier one becomes, the more suffering one endures. Even friends can bring suffering. Usually we feel that friends bring us more pleasure and happiness, but sometimes they bring more trouble. Today your friend has a nice smiling face, but in a moment the conversation can turn sour and you start to fight with no trace of friendship. We do gain happiness and satisfaction from our friends, but it is impermanent. It is not true happiness. Therefore, in a deep sense, ordinary friendship also has a nature of pain. Look at your own body. No matter how smooth your complexion and how fine your figure, if you shed even one drop of blood, it is suddenly not so good-looking. Under the skin there is raw flesh. Look deeper and you find bone. Skeletons in a museum or a hospital make most of us uncomfortable, but we are all the same underneath. Some people may be quite fat, others thin, some handsome. Yet if I look at them with an x-ray machine, I see a room full of skeletons with huge eye sockets. Such is the real nature of our body. Consider the pleasure of eating. Today I had some delicious food. Before I ate it, it was beautiful. But as it passed through my stomach and intestines, it changed into something not so beautiful. When eating, we avoid noticing that this happens. And we take pleasure, thinking, Oh, now this is a very good meal. I am really pleased. But that beautiful food gradually passes through my body and finally goes into the toilet in a form nobody regards as beautiful. This stuff that people regard as very dirty actually is made in this human body. If I may make a joke, it sometimes seems that making stool is a principal function of our bodies. Eating, working, and making money are meaningless in themselves. However, even a small act of compassion grants meaning and purpose to our lives.